Thank you. I'm excited to be here as well. I was here with you in November, and then David and I came to the amphitheater this summer and joined you for one of those services. I know you have a lot of people who know you, and I also know you through Jim Howard, your pastor, because he and Nancy are dear friends of ours. We go back to Germany days uh, because we both served with Cadence International in the same city, Darmstadt. And Nancy and I had sons born there a year apart. So I saw that Drew was here, was it last week, two weeks ago? Anyway, I got to visit him in the hospital when he was born. And then last week you had a retreat and Danny and Catherine Perez were with you and they are also dear friends and Cadence colleagues. We go way back. My husband David is here. He's the president of Cadence International, which is a ministry to military around the world. And he's served in that role since 1995, which is why we're down in the Denver area in Inglewood. And we uh, are really happy to be here on this beautiful day, too. I know if I see your eyes, like, going out the window or, you know, out there, it's, it's pretty spectacular. Well, I am also in the Doctor of Ministry program at Denver Seminary, and one of my professors this summer was Dr. Jim Howard. And just last night when I was finishing my prep, I saw that Dr. Jim Howard had graded my final paper for his class. He wrote all over it, but I got a 93 in the class, <laughs> so I'm happy. That particular paper was a 91. That's okay. The final grade is in, and I'm so grateful for everything that I'm learning in that program as well. You are starting a series on the beauty of Jesus from Philippians, and it will begin next week, I believe. And I'm not going to go into Philippians. We'll let Jim take you there or whoever else he has um, here. But I do want to talk about the beauty of Jesus from a different passage. We're going to look at John 4. And do you see that 1 to 42? Does that make you nervous? Um, Don't worry about it. We are going to read a lot of verses today. And what I would like for you to do is just listen to them like story. Just let the narrative just wash over you, kind of like a river that we're on. And we just go through these verses. And we won't get to go down into all the detail of them because there are too many. And I even have more than that, believe it or not. But if we would just let them carry, carry you this morning, carry us through this story as we look at Jesus. Now, I always appreciate knowing where I am on a map. Uh, you know, now we have GPS, which is amazing. Um, when we talk about the good old days in Germany with youth retreats, taking busloads of kids down to Spain with no cell phone and no computer and no GPS, you know, we're kind of proud of that. But anyway, I am thankful that we can know where we are, and I'm going to spend a little time here at the beginning setting us into the gospel where John 4 fits into Jesus' story, but I'm also going to go way back to Genesis, so I'm just telling you ahead of time. We're going to cover some ground to just find out where we are, and then we'll go through this story in John 4. All right. I used the Chronological Bible you know this here? When my dad, he died last summer at age 95, and for the last, I don't know, five or ten years of his life, he went through this every year uh, because it's a one-year plan in this, and and it's chronological. So I checked it out to see where John 4 fits in the story of Jesus, and it fits early on in his public ministry. We know he starts his public ministry... um, 
Well, he starts John with the declaration of the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He created all things. Apart from him, nothing was made that was made. And then we see in John 1.14 that the Word became flesh and blood and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. The message says the, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. This is what Jesus did. He came to us right where we are. A few weeks ago, I was sitting in church, and my beloved five-year-old grandson was sitting on my lap. And he said, Grandma, are we going to have communion again? I said, yes, we are, because we have it every week like you do here. When is it? Pretty soon. And he just loves it. He's so excited. So he goes up. He's put his faith in Jesus a few months ago, but we go up together. I get to hold his hand. It's one of the joys of being a grandma. Oh. Anyway, held his hand, went up for communion. He and his sisters and brother, and they get the, the bread, and the children are given a little, the cup of juice. We go back to our seat, and he sits on my lap, and I have white pants. And I'm thinking, oh, dear. And my white pants were okay. That, that was just a side. But, it, I, you know, it did go through my mind. Ooh. So he is taking that bread. He's drinking a little. He's dipping it into his little cup. And then he finishes, and he's drinking it like this. And he says, Grandma, the wine and the grape juice look like blood. And the bread looks like Skin. And for me, it was a moment of worship that this five-year-old got it. We're talking about real person here, Jesus, who came and took on a body. And that bread did look like my grandson's skin because he's pretty pasty white. But probably the pita bread, you know, the unleavened bread in the, in the first century looked probably more like their skin. He came, Jesus came, and then he was baptized by John the Baptist. He went into the desert. He was tempted for 40 days. He called his disciples after that when he came back. And then his first miracle was at the wedding of Cana where he turned the water into wine. And then the next thing he did was he cleared the temple for the first time. The second time was in his last week before he went to the cross. But the first time was early in his ministry. I find that very fascinating. And then in John 3, he meets with a very prestigious religious leader, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who had really good questions. And Nicodemus wasn't free to come to him in the daytime, but he came at night, and he asked his questions. And Jesus, from Jesus' mouth to Nicodemus, he said, God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world would be saved. That's not talking, I mean, it is talking about Jesus, but it's talking from Jesus to us. Double power, I think. And then what happens next is we meet Jesus out, outside in the middle of the day by a well 
where he encounters a woman from Samaria. We don't know her name, but her story is significant. And we're going to get into that story, but before we get into that story, I'm going to go back just a little further. Okay? I'd like to look at the very beginning of God's story with humans in Genesis 1 and 2 because I want to anchor our encounter with Jesus in John 4 with the intentions of Jesus for his creation. So let's look at a couple of verses here. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 say, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image and our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Our image. Right there, we get the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Ooh, so cool. Right at the beginning. And then he says, our likeness. So humans are not only going to represent the Trinity, but they're going to represent how they relate to each other in community. And then he says, they will rule over everything we just created. Except for the stars. It doesn't mention that. But it does mention the birds in the air and the fish in the sea, which is kind of vast. Like, somehow his intentions for his humans are this vast, big job that he has for them to rule, to lead. And then the next thing he says about his image, it's our image, our likeness. They're going to rule, and it's going to be male and female. There's something about the image of God that's expressed in our identities as men and women. The first declaration God makes of his own image is our relationship and community. Let them rule purposeful leadership, and male and female, parity in partnership. Now, parity is a seminary word I just learned. Maybe you know it. I didn't know it. P-A-R-I-T-Y. It means that you have, each one has their full share. Everybody's coming to the table at 100% with what they have to offer. And this partnership that God created at the beginning, I think he had that in mind that we're going to need both to image God, to do the work he's given us to do, and to have a full share, however he's gifted us. Um, In Genesis 1.28, it says God blessed them. Let's don't skip over that. God blessed them. And then he gave them his creation commission, be fruitful and multiply, which I think is relationship and impact. Fill the earth and govern it, leadership and stewardship. And then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, I as a woman kind of have always wondered what that helper suitable means. Like, I'm not going to say what I think because some of it's pretty snarky. Okay. I'm just going to say I've wondered. Let's just say I've wondered. 
And it hasn't been until like five years ago that I learned these Hebrew words for helper suitable. You know them. I can see your face. Oh, they're so exciting. They're so inspiring. Like, okay, I'm in for that. Because, see, this word for helper is E-Z-E-R, Azer. Some say Ezer. I hear it mostly Azer. And here's how Azer is used in the Old Testament. It's used 21 times, twice for women, 16 times for God, and three times for armies that are going to come help in battle. Okay, then. In fact, you know that psalm that we're familiar with, um, Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my azer come from? My azer comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will never slumber or sleep. The Lord watches over you. He's the shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. I mean, this is big. And then there's other passages where he's like coming down in the clouds, the azer. Here we come. Okay, speaking of God, but that is the same word that's used for this helper. There's a strength. There's a purpose to this helper. And there's even a military sense, a warrior-like sense that you are needed for battle. I'm in. And then when it says suitable, this word is connecto. And it's kind of like a right hand is to a left hand. Put this way for you. And so if she is suitable or corresponding to, and she is a strong warrior-like help, like you really need this help, then I think there's a strength in the man that if, her, if she's that kind of strong helper, he's strong too. And you know what? If she's a warrior, he's a warrior too. Because they're corresponding to each other. Why? Because God gave them a big, big job. He said, I want you to image me. And then I want you to rule and subdue leadership and stewardship. And then I want you to be fruitful and multiply. I want you to have relationship and impact that goes as far as the birds in the sky and the fish of the sea. This is a big job. But that warrior-like sense also is important because there's already an enemy in the garden. And there are already instructions for the choices you're going to need to make regarding good and evil and how much you're going to get involved. And we know how the story goes on. We know that they choose to eat of that food. And there are consequences. But as I read closely, I see that God curses the snake, the serpent, And he curses the ground, but he doesn't curse the people. He still has a big job for them to do. He just says, it's going to be really hard now. The job I gave you, it's going to hurt. You're going to sweat. You're going to argue with each other. You're going to have power struggles. But it doesn't change the fact that he made us for this. 
Now that, let us make humans. Do you know who was there in that let us? Jesus. He hadn't taken on a body yet. But when we get to John 4 and Jesus shows up at the well with the woman, he knows what he made her for. He knows his intentions towards her and every other human he made. So let's see how that plays out in how Jesus relates to this woman. We're going to go now into the, oh, wait, one more thing. Oh, this is kind of cool. I didn't say it in first service because I didn't have time, but they said I have more time now, so. Okay. When... um, For Adam, no suitable helper was found, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep while he was sleeping. He took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. The Lord God made a woman from the rib. He'd taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Now, I looked up, you know, we have software now. We can look up Hebrew words. So even though I didn't study Hebrew, I can find out what it means. (laughs) And I can look up articles written by Jewish rabbis, and I have. And this word, what he took out... You know, sometimes rib, we kind of think like a spare part, you know, like he's got a bunch of others. But um, it's tzela, and it's likely not just a rib. In fact, the footnote in my Bible says, or took part of the man's side, like a big chunk. Okay? Why? Because God was making somebody that was bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This word is used 40 times in the Old Testament, 23 times it means side, 15 times it means a side room, and twice it refers to the creation of Eve. I think that's cool. Who knows what kind of stitches, you know, Adam had? I mean, from the... Anyway, maybe God just like... I don't know. We'll find out when we get to heaven. We'll ask. Okay. Let's go to John 4 now. We've set the stage from Genesis. We've set the stage from the Gospels and Jesus' uh, ministry. So let's read. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, the disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to Joseph. This actually is called Shechem in the Old Testament. And there was a well there then. And there's a well there now. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. So she said to Jesus, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? But Jesus knew, Jesus knew that she had dignity. He had taken the shorter route to get where he was going from Judea to Galilee, three days' walk. He stopped at the village of Sychar, which used to be Shechem, and he's tired and he's thirsty. He's a human. He's in a body. And the well here connects to a free-flowing spring, and even today the well that's there is about 100 feet deep and connects to a free-flowing stream underneath. 
Jesus is there at lunchtime. The disciples have gone to the village to buy food. And it's not unheard of for people to come to the well in the middle of the afternoon. I've heard of different explanations of why she's there then. We don't know. She's there to get water. That's all we need to know. We also know that when Jesus asks her for a drink, she's surprised. Because in that culture, men rarely spoke to women in public. But there's more. Because at this point, the Samaritans and Jews had been feuding over racial, religious, and political issues for about 750 years. Talk about the feud (laughs) and the arm going through the door. But do you see Jesus looking down on her at all in this first part of the conversation? Is he impolite? Hey, lady, give me a drink. No, may I please have a drink? Furthermore, when he asks for that drink, he knows full well that as soon as that ladle touches his lips, he's going to be unclean as a Jew. He doesn't make an issue of it. It's no big deal to him. He knows that she has dignity. And he knows she is thirsty for more. Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, said the woman, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Jesus goes into deeper conversation. He offers her an explanations for her very legitimate questions. She asks about Jacob's well. She refers to Jacob as both hers and Jesus' ancestor, which is correct. In her questions to Jesus, she shows that she is not uninformed. Even though she wasn't educated in the same way that the men were in that time, this woman has done her homework. She's having an intellectual conversation with a Jewish rabbi. And she doesn't shrink back. She doesn't hold back. I admire this about her and so much more. And I think Jesus took her seriously. He also knows her story, and he knows that she has suffered. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly speak the truth. 
instead of getting into... Oh, sorry, I'm going back. In In the first century, a woman could petition a court to ask the husband to release her, but she could not divorce her husband. However, a husband was allowed to divorce his wife. So how had this woman lost five husbands? She had either been widowed or divorced by that man. His choice to reject her, or perhaps he was much older than her, as was the case many times, and died. And five times she had this loss. And we know that in that culture, the women really did depend on a man for their provision and protection, either their father or their husband. As far as we know, this woman did not have a track record of immorality. Why she was living with a man now to whom she was not married, we don't know. We know she needed the protection and the provision, but we don't know. Maybe he had another wife. Maybe he had kids who didn't want to share their inheritance. We don't know. But probably her reputation has now been tarnished because of this last relationship, not because of the five. The five is suffering. I'm not saying there were bad marriages. I'm just saying that's a lot of loss. Jesus saw that she had suffered loss. He knows that she had suffered rejection. He knew that she might be lonely and misunderstood. But he also knew that she was a hopeful woman. She did not give up on men. She did not give up on marriage. She did not give up on learning. And no matter what she'd been through, she was showing up. I admire that about her. She also was honest. She was straightforward in her conversation with Jesus, and Jesus honored that. I'm at verse 19 now. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me. Why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it's here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshipped? Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter where you, whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes from the Jews. But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him in that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Instead of getting into the long-standing feud, Jesus turns the conversation to God, who is not to be worshipped in a specific location, but in a specific state of heart and mind, spirit and truth. Now, the Samaritan woman knew the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, because that was her scripture, which was different than the Jews knowing all of the other books, including the prophets. But in her first five books, there was a prophecy about a Messiah. From Deuteronomy 18, Do we get any sense that Jesus is scorning her? Because she doesn't know the rest of the Old Testament. 
No. Do we hear him communicate that she's not smart or that she's blown her chances to know God because of the choices she's made and the story she's lived? No. We're going to see just the opposite. Jesus elevates her then by trusting her with the most important information about himself. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Capital I, capital A-M, I am the Messiah. Now earlier when Jesus calls the disciples, we see Andrew going after his brother Peter and saying, come, we've found the Messiah. So they're already talking about the Messiah, but that hasn't gotten to her in Samaria. And she's not the one who says it. Jesus is the one who tells her who reveals himself to her in all his glory, I am the Messiah. He knows he can trust her with his identity. And then the disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Jesus also knew that she was an acer, a strong help to his ministry. And sure enough, She went and told them. There's a Christian psychiatrist, psychiatrist, Dr. Kurt Thompson. Um, He's the author of The Anatomy of the Soul and The Soul of Shame. I had to read it for school, (laughs) listen to these talks. And he said, infants from the time they are born are seeking to find someone seeking for them in order to make sense of their lives. And it never stops. Did you catch those words a little while back? The Father is looking for those who will worship him. So as we're looking for someone who is looking for us, anytime we look at Jesus, anytime we look at the Father, he is looking for us. And he's looking for us to look for him. Do you see that? And that is how we make sense of our lives. And it never stops. Let's think about this in terms of our lives and our relationship with Jesus. Because this story, which we haven't quite finished yet, does move into this room. And we need to see and say, and receive that Jesus knows that we also have dignity. He knows what he created. 
and shame is a tactic of the devil. Evil attacks us with broad accusations, but Jesus convicts us about specific behavior. He doesn't attack our identity. He elevates our identity. And Jesus knows we are thirsty too. All the way back in Isaiah 55, 700 years before, God says, is anyone thirsty? Come and drink. Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen, and you will find life. I wrote a poem about it a few years ago, about Isaiah 55. Beckoning those who are thirsty, come. Jesus is calling to all, not just some. No need for money, no requirement to meet. Come to the waters, come by and eat. Living water is flowing from him, refreshing, satisfying, cleansing from sin. Nourishing a soul like nothing else may. Listen that you may live. Hear Jesus say. Seek me, call on me, turn to me now. Pardon and mercy and faithful love I vow. Delight and splendor mark the well-watered soul. Instead of the thornbrush, such glory a garden will grow. Such glory and purpose and joy for the one who answers the call when Jesus says, come. Jesus knows our stories and our sufferings. And they do not disqualify you from being used by Jesus in beautiful ways, just like the Samaritan's woman's story and suffering did not disqualify her from serving Jesus. And Jesus knows what we've been paying attention to in our theology and with our questions. And I happen to know that this church is a safe place to ask questions. So ask them. Do you see all the questions this woman asked Jesus? Go for it. I was having a conversation with an 18-year-old young man recently, and in the middle of the conversation, I realized I needed to say this to him. I said, I want to apologize on behalf of my generation for making it unsafe for your generation to ask your questions. Just like Rob had said earlier, we want this to be a safe place, and I believe it is. And we're all working. Some of us who didn't do so well at that for a while, we are working to make it safe for you and for the upcoming generations to ask their questions. And Jesus has trusted us with his identity. We know he's the Christ, Messiah, Savior, God. He says to the disciples, I have food that you know nothing about. Let's read this. The disciples urged Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked. Then Jesus explained, My nourishment comes from doing the will of God, who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest? But I say, Wake up. Look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. 
The harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. You know the saying, one plants and another harvests, and it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work, and now you will get to gather the harvest. Jesus says, guys, you're talking about groceries. I'm talking about souls. And they're right around you. They're right around you. Just look. He says, Messiah is here, and the world needs to know, and the time is now. And everyone needs the living water that Jesus offers. And Jesus trusts us with the harvest of people for his kingdom. It's a lot of trust. But you know, when we think about how he created us, that was a lot of trust. That was a lot of responsibility. And it hasn't stopped. Because we're the ones here and now, no matter what our age, no matter what our station in life, we are here with purpose. Jesus' plans for his humans have not changed from Genesis 1 and 2. We're made and called to be fruitful and multiply, relationship and impact, rule and subdue, leadership and stewardship. And we're called to image God and do it together in community, men and women, young and old, single and married. The woman of Samaria was made for this. Each of us are made for this. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village, so he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe. Not just because of what you told us, but because we've heard him ourselves. And now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. So let's ask ourselves, what am I thirsty for? Where am I trying to quench this thirst? How am I living in the dignity and purposes for which God made me? To what and to whom am I paying attention? And what are my questions for Jesus? And finally, where right here in my story and my circumstances is the field ripe, ready for harvest? This week, one of our young friends, who's a friend of our son, came over to hang out with our son, who um, runs his business out of our home. He started telling us about his job as a teacher. And we just enjoyed hearing about it so much. We've watched him grow up. And we're just, wow, okay, interesting. But then David was pretty strategic. He just said, you know, I want you to know that we're really proud of you. We were proud of you when you were young. We saw him grow up, and we saw some of the story and suffering that he lived through. But we want you to know we're proud of you now also. And then he said something very surprising. He said, when I do something good, I think of you guys. And I think you'd be proud of me. Who knew 
that somehow that love that we've shown him through the years ends up in his mind when he does something good and he thinks of us and he hears us saying, we're proud of you. And then he got to hear us say it out loud in our kitchen. Will I keep doing my part? cultivating, planting, and telling my people the Messiah is here. He's here now. He is Jesus, and he is beautiful. Let's pray. So Jesus, as we look at you, an actual person and God, whatever... We see, well, I I just pray that you'd let us see. And then would you let us see where we fit into your story that you're still writing in our hearts and in the world that you started way back when we were just in your mind, but you haven't stopped advocating for us and looking for us and looking for us, looking for you. And you've met us. And we want you to meet us more. And we want that living water to be so real that it does just bubble out of our lives wherever you've put us, whatever the day is. Lord, I pray for healing, for suffering that people have gone through. You know. I pray that they would glimpse, everybody in this room, me included, would glimpse the dignity and the love and the honor you've put on us as your children. And that you actually do want us to help you. You've done it all to pay for our sin. That door of reconciliation we could be part of, Lord. Well, just take all our thoughts right now and whatever you're doing in our heart, we just, we just give to you and we say we love you. We're thankful for you, Jesus. And we pray in your name. Amen.